informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, folks, thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this April 15th. It is Good Friday, and because of that, the markets are closed today, and a lot of the folks that I usually talk to here on AOA are out traveling. So for today's show, we're going to replay some of the great conversations we've had from earlier in this month. We're going to talk with Danielle Quist from the IDFA here in segment two about the SEC's new disclosure requirements for public companies about their impact on climate change. In segment three, I'm excited. We're going to talk with BJ Johnson. He is the founder and inventor of Clear Flame Engines. This is the technology that, with a few minor tweaks, is allowing diesel engines to run on nearly 100% ethanol. In segment four, we're going to talk with John Sandbach, and he's the executive director of the National Sunflower Association. And that sunflower market has been wild since Russia invaded Ukraine and a lot of the world's sunflower oil supply was cut off. Before we get into our first conversation, and that's with Jeff Cooper, President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, about the work they've been doing to research consumers' attitudes towards E15. Let's turn it over to Jeff Cooper. The RFA recently did a new analysis showing that E15 sales were a record in 2021. To help explain this a little bit better, joining me now is Jeff Cooper. He's the President and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. And Jeff, it's good news to see some data backing up the stories we've been hearing about U.S. consumers saving money with ethanol. Well, that's right, Mike. We finally got uh, full calendar year data for 2021 uh, to look at and, and see what it showed us in terms of E15 sales. And what we learned is that E15 sales jumped about 60% in 2021 compared to 2020 and hit a new record of, of more than 800 million gallons uh, and, and again, we, we know that's because consumers are, are gravitating toward the lowest cost fuel at the pump. And even before the Ukraine crisis and, and $4 gasoline, that lowest cost option at the pump was E15. It's you know typically been about a dime below E10. Uh, but in recent weeks, and really since the middle of February, since the Ukraine situation, uh, we've seen that spread between E15 and E10 grow to as much as 30, 40, sometimes 50 cents uh, lower than E10. And and obviously consumers are responding to that. So we think the surge in E15 sales we saw in 2021 has definitely continued in 2022 and, and has probably accelerated. Yeah, I've got a feeling when that data comes out, this really high price fuel is going to be driving more consumers. Jeff, have we heard from retailers? Are consumers demanding it so much that retailers are looking at expanding to E15? Oh, we absolutely have heard from retailers that they are uh, looking at at every option they have to try and get E15 uh, in, into, the, into their systems. Uh, you know, even the majors like BP and Shell are now an- announcing a move into E15. BP is is now offering E15 at eight uh, at terminals in eight states in the Midwest, um, and that's really the first time we've seen a major offer E15 as a branded product uh, at the terminal. So we are seeing some real progress, and and that's you know that's really when the uh, the dam starts breaking is when you get um, the product offered at the terminals as a branded product, uh, and and we're beginning to see that now. The unfortunate part of all this is unless Washington, D.C. gets their act together and, and acts immediately, 
uh, all of this progress that we're seeing on E15 is is in jeopardy because come June 1st, that lowest cost fuel option at the pump, that E15, could disappear um, because of of the again this decades old regulation that we have that that effectively bans the sale of E15 during the summer months in two thirds of the country. And Jeff, I know RFA has done a lot of the legwork in seeing just how politically popular it is to offer E15 year round, and it's very popular, isn't it? It is. In fact, we we uh, do you know nationwide surveys uh, from time to time, and the last one we did included some questions about uh, you know the response to the situation in the Ukraine and, and record high gas prices, and and what you know what options do voters see as the best way to address uh, the pain at the pump they're experiencing. And more than four out of five registered voters, 83%, uh, said, hey, we ought to be increasing our production, our domestic production of renewable fuels like ethanol as a way to bring down pump prices. Um, And specifically on E15, we saw about three and four voters, 72%, uh, said, hey, why aren't we increasing the availability of E15 as a way to replace those oil imports that we were getting from Russia and, and as a way to drive down gas prices. So consumers get it, especially those that have uh, been using E15. Uh, it seems like once they try it one time, uh, they're a, a customer for life. Um, and we're seeing that product really spread in the marketplace. Again, we just need a little bit of help on the regulatory front uh, from, uh, from our friends, fr- friends in D.C. Is that help coming? June 1st is just around the corner. Jeff, are we going to get this resolved? Well, we, we sure hope so. And we know there is a lot of pressure on the White House right now uh, to get this fixed, uh, to, to get some sort of uh, at least stopgap measure in place that would allow retailers to continue selling E15 this summer. I mean, just imagine uh, how bad the optics are going to be for this administration if that lowest cost fuel that's available anywhere in the marketplace disappears on June 1st and drivers face another price hike, uh, all because of some arcane regulations. So yes, uh, our friends in, in, in the Senate and in the House uh, are really weighing in with this administration um, and trying to get them to do everything they can to make sure that American consumers continue to have access to this lowest cost fuel come summertime. You know, Jeff, it's been fascinating to see this price, this spike in fuel prices happen at the same time social media use is very commonplace. And I've seen so many people sharing pictures of gas pumps with the prices up there. And it seems like ethanol is always the cheapest option. I know RFA is looking to get more of those pictures out there. Could you talk about your pump up the savings sweepstakes program? Yeah, it's it's really quite simple, Mike. And you're right. It, you know, oftentimes a, a picture is worth a thousand words. And and it's been amazing how much success we've had in just showing people in, in Washington, hey, this is what's happening on the ground. When you can show them a picture of a pump that has E15 priced 25 or 30 cents below E10, or it has E85 priced a dollar or a dollar 50 below E10, that's when the wheels really start turning and people understand what sort of savings ethanol is offering. So we do have a, a, a promotional campaign out there right now. Uh, where all you have to do is post a picture on Twitter of your local pump prices. If 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 you got a station that sells E15 or E85, uh, snap a picture, uh, put it on Twitter. There's certain hashtags that we want you to use, um, and, and you got a chance. We you get entered into a drawing for a $50 uh, gas card um, once a week. So 
uh, check that out on our Twitter account, and uh, we would certainly encourage everybody to participate because, again, uh, show and tell uh, seems to be the most effective way of, of getting this message across right now. It certainly does. Always appreciate Jeff Cooper, president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association, taking the time to join us. Jeff, hope you have a great day today. Hey, thanks for having me, Mike. Take care. And folks, stick around. We'll talk China trade with Simon Lester when AOA returns. America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Last week, the Securities and Exchange Commission rolled out really what was a long-awaited rule. They issued a 506-page rule really standardizing how climate risks would need to be disclosed by publicly traded companies. Now, this will have long-reaching and far-reaching implications really across all sectors of the American economy, particularly those companies who are publicly traded, and agriculture is no exception to that. One organization that has been watching this very closely is the International Dairy Foods Association, and joining us from that org is Danielle Quist. She is the Vice President of Regulatory Affairs and Council with IDFA, Danielle, thanks for joining us to talk about this SEC climate disclosure rule. Thank you for having me today. Let's start. Obviously, 506 pages. We're not going to be able to run through all the details here in the next several minutes. But Danielle, let's start. What was the SEC pushing for with this rule? What are their goals? Really, their goals are to standardize and expand on what publicly traded, the types of information related to climate change and climate risks that publicly traded companies have to disclose to investors, to the SEC. So it's scope one and two, which are those types of emissions that are coming from a company's own operations. But importantly, and especially for agriculture, it also, for many, for many publicly disclosed companies, it will include scope three, and that's the value chain from the company, all the way from the farm up until when the product is sold. So as we think about these different scopes, obviously, for those of us who are outside the world of, of climate change regulations, it's kind of hard to wrap our head around. So scopes one and two, that's emissions created by the company itself, right? If I'm a steel smelter, it's what greenhouse gases are emitted as I'm smelting the ore. Scope three then would look at the miners' emissions, right, down as they're digging the iron ore out of the ground. Is that kind of how you'd relate it? That's exactly it. Scope 3 emissions are indirect emissions. So for a, say for example, um, dairy foods, the farm, the dairy farmer is a key part of the scope 3 emission from the raw milk that then is taken to a processor and processed into dairy goodness and then it may ultimately go to a brand. It may go be a private label through a retailer that could be a publicly traded company or the processor itself um, could be the company. So it, it's, it, really, it really varies, but generally agriculture, dairy farmers are going to fall under scope three as the suppliers to the ultimate food product that is sold. So if this rule were, rule were to be finalized, Danielle, which companies would need to be releasing these climate change disclosures? It's only publicly traded companies in the U.S. 
So you have to be registered with the SEC. Um, and the scope three emissions, there's a little bit more flexibility for smaller publicly traded companies. At least there are in the proposal. We'll see what the final rule ultimately says. But this really goes beyond just what the SEC is proposing here because the, the European Union has already, is already finalizing very similar rules. Uh, other um, U.S. global trading partners have similar disclosure requirements. So it's really becoming necessary for global competition to be able to track and to be able to measure and report climate, change, climate emissions, greenhouse gas emissions from the farm all the way to the fork. It goes all the way through the value chain. Danielle, one of the challenges I hear from folks looking at this law is they say, how do we measure these things? We've got a lot of models, but is there a scientific consensus on how we can accurately reflect what sort of greenhouse gas chemicals or, or pollutants, so to speak, are being released by these companies, particularly farther up the value chain? Well, at the farm level, that is something that is still that we're still working on. And one thing that this rule will help do is spur financial commitments to help farmers pay for the types of measuring and reporting that needs to be done. I know that USDA is becoming very involved with climate smart agriculture, but we need more we need more data, we need more information, we need more funding so that farmers can do the type of measuring and reporting that needs to be done. And right now the SEC understands that. They're not expecting farmers to start reporting tomorrow. There is a phase-in period for, for publicly traded companies that do have to report scope 3 emissions, recognizing that the technology needs to catch up. And I think one of the reasons the SEC is pushing this is to try and help spur the, the technology with the with the publicly traded rule requirements. Okay, and it's interesting this is all happening now. Danielle, you mentioned the EU has similar rules. Multiple other trading partners we have have similar rules. This seems to tie in very closely with a phrase that's been talked about a lot in the financial media over the past several years, and that's ESG. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about what ESG means and how it's impacting the ag sector, particularly the dairy food sector that you work with? Sure. So ESG is a lovely acronym, and it means environment, social, and governance. And I look at ESG as kind of the next step up from sustainability. So when we talk about sustainability, we're generally talking about doing good things on the farm, implementing practices that improve environmental quality, and the journey that it takes to get there. ESG is a step up. It's broader in scope, so it does go beyond environment and includes social and human capital and how a company's management structure furthers those goals. But what's really critical about ESG is it requires the setting of standards, standards based on accounting practices and, and metrics that are globally recognized, and measuring the company's performance against that standard. And then measuring the, and understanding the risks that those ESG factors have on a company's business model and their financial performance. It's being used by creditors, by lenders, uh, by governments and investors to really get a bigger, a bigger, a better understanding into how climate change is going to impact the future of a company. So that's a lot of this is coming from the investor community and from consumers as well. It is. And as we're thinking about this push towards ESG, it is shaping the, the money flow around the world as investors are looking to, to spend money or invest in places that meet these standards. And 
as I think about agriculture, our industry tends to get thrown under the bus as a polluter quite a bit. Does this push towards ESG? Does this raise concerns about investors moving into the ag space? Or do you think we'll, we'll modernize enough and we'll be able to have these standards to, uh, to still stay competitive when they're focusing on ESG as an investing metric? Well, I mean, agriculture, dairy, dairy in particular, I mean, we have a lot of room for improvement on the farm. Um, and I think that as, these, as the metrics are set and farmers are able to, to measure and report, um, it'll show that there, there can be some significant reductions. Um, so there's something, some, some emissions are never going to go away. And that's just recognizing that that's, that's part, of, part of, of, of raising agricultural products. Um, but what, the farmers that are able to measure and report themselves are going to be more competitive. And there's a lot of questions about, you know, becoming more attractive to buyers, looking to reduce their scope three, and the government programs that hopefully will help do that. But in the end, it, it's, it hopefully will be a positive for agriculture, that we can get those resources and make, make improvements on the farm that are measurable and that can be reported up the value chain. That makes a lot of sense. Danielle, as you think about how dairy producers up and down the value chain might start to to plan for this move towards uh, this rule being in effect, what sort of additional monitoring should they be thinking about here in 2022? What are the key metrics that these publicly traded companies might be watching down the value chain? Well, we still need to see that. And I will say that for for dairy producers to look to their co-ops, there are some co-ops that are already very much in the doing measurements and working with their farmers. Um, look to your customers. Uh, the publicly traded companies may have to go. There may be other companies in between the farmer and the publicly traded company. But your, I think what we're going to start seeing is customers um, starting to work more with their supply chain to make sure that there's a level of rigor and substantiation um, in, in how these in how emissions are measured on the farm because the publicly traded company has they have to be they have to be done um, re- they have to be done to a certain standard as far as reasonableness and in good faith so I, I think we'll see a lot more uh, coordination between farmers and their customers as they develop forms and processes for measuring and, and obtaining this type of information throughout the value chain. Indeed. Danielle, before we let you go, you, of course, at IDFA have been working on this. Where could could growers go for more information on this rule and how it would pertain to the dairy sector? Well, I know here at IDFA, we're trying to put as much information as we can out. We had a webinar with PricewaterhouseCoopers and a law firm on Monday. Uh, we're still actually digging into the rule. Like you said, it's over 500 pages long. It's a beast. It is um, indeed, folks. We'll keep tracking this rule and hopefully we'll get Danielle on again as this thing gets finalized. Stay with us here for more AOA coming up. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Thanks for joining us today for AOA, ladies and gentlemen. You know, 130 years ago, in 1892, Rudolf Diesel received his first patent for a compression ignition engine. Over the next 130 years, diesel engine technology changed, but diesel fuel was a crucial component of it. Well, here in 2022, that's changing. Clear Flame Engines, a new technology company, is out there and they are working to break the bond between diesel engines, compression ignition engines, and diesel fuel. Joining me today to talk about this is Dr. BJ Johnson. He's the CEO and founder of Clear Flame Engine Technologies. BJ, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Mike. Let's talk about Clear Flame Technologies. BJ, what is the crucial element that you guys have created to change the, the diesel engine game? I, I think you explained it beautifully in your intro, which is that there's nothing wrong with the diesel engine design. There's a reason that it dominates all of the high-performance applications that it does, like trucking and agriculture. The problem has always been the cost and emissions challenges of petroleum diesel fuel. It is, a, it is a fuel that works well in those engines, but it doesn't have to be the only fuel we can use. And that's where Clearflame comes in. What we developed was uh, effectively a higher temperature combustion process, something we can do to, to tweak 10, 15% of the parts of that engine, keep it running exactly the way a diesel engine does today, but free it up to make a more intelligent fuel choice and be able to leverage fuels like ethanol that are lower cost and cleaner burning than diesel improving that all of the economic value that we associate with the diesel engine no longer has to be saddled with those economic and environmental challenges when it comes to fuel price and emissions. It's it's fa fascinating, BJ, to see the way this just tweaks things in such a way that it opens up an entire new world of possibility. I said this is a new company, but you're not a new company. Clearflame has been around for a while. Can you give us the, the breakdown on how this got started? Yeah, so you know, as a technology, we we date back about ten years or so at this point. In in grad school, I met Clearflame's co-founder Julie Bloomrider. That's when we first started working on this technology, proving that we could make a, a fundamentally fuel agnostic diesel engine. In 2016, we started the company, and in early 2017, moved to the Chicago area, and that's where we really started to appreciate the benefits of ethanol as a fuel. We developed a fuel agnostic platform. We chose ethanol not to promote corn, not to be able to actually sell more of the fuel. And of course our technology helps do that, but we chose the fuel purely on its merits. And we've been showing over the last five years or so that yes, you absolutely can get ethanol to run in a diesel engine and deliver everything you expect from that engine. Um, but the, the interest in ClearFund has really picked up in the last six months or so. Um, now that we have our, our first trucks driving on the road, we're able to start testing with customers in the near future. Um, we have an investment from John Deere that's allowing us to expand this into agriculture applications as well, tractors and combines. Um, we've been working on it for a long time, and now we're finally at that prove-it stage, and really, we're really excited to show what we can do. It is very neat. And the, the I remember when the press release came out here a few months ago about the truck completing its road test. I was wondering, BJ, if we could circle back. You, you picked corn ethanol not to suck up to farmers or anything like that, but because of its merits. Um, a lot of our listeners are familiar with its merits as an oxygen source in gasoline. Tell me, what are the merits that corn ethanol brings to being used in a compression ignition environment? Yeah, it's it's a great question, and I think it's it's uh, an important one that everyone's ready to answer as we talk about what ethanol is going to be in this country for the next 20 years. 
you know, as, as you were alluding to, it has tremendous benefits as an oxygenate, as an octane improver in gasoline. But octane's not actually good for a diesel engine. Um, but fortunately, ethanol has so much more to it than just those, those octane benefits. It's fundamentally in, lower in carbon. It is 45 to 50% lower in terms of CO2 impact than you would get with diesel fuel, which is not perfect, but it is as much of a reduction as you would get to switching to an electric vehicle today. And ethanol is very much on the pathway in the next 15 years to becoming a net carbon neutral fuel. And at the same time, you know, when I say the word emissions today, I think most people's minds go to greenhouse gases, to CO2. But let's not forget the other half of the emissions and pollution problem, which is criteria emissions, things that affect human health, like soot and smog. And when you're in a crowded urban area, being able to switch away from dirty diesel fuel to ethanol, a, a fuel that burns without any of that black soot that creates that orange sooty claim, flame, you know, ethanol burns with a clear flame. That's how we get our name. And that has real human health benefits as well when it comes down to to, to reducing impacts of, of things like soot and smog. Yeah, it is very incredible when you think of the amount of trucks in heavy urban environments that are all rolling coal to be able to have a clear flame boy that would improve air quality. BJ, thinking about the environment we're in today, where we have a huge push for electric vehicles, and we're seeing some companies say we're not going to build internal combustion engines or engines that run on uh, petroleum or, or fossil fuels. How quickly does clear flame need to act to secure the this as a as a, a motive force here in the economy. Uh, also, a key question. You know, I think there's a, a couple parts to that answer. Um, you know, when it comes to the need to act quickly, um, it, it's more about increasing awareness that this is possible. You know, everyone is making big commitments to electrification today, as they should be. I think there are some markets where electric vehicles make a lot of sense. You know, passenger cars in urban areas and multi-car family homes. You know, it's, it's a great market opportunity for EVs. You know, is the combustion engine going to go away overnight? No. And so will Clearframe have a, a market for our technologies for the foreseeable future, decades, particularly in heavy-duty, hard-to-electrify applications like freight trucks and tractors and combines and construction? That market opportunity is not going anywhere. But, but the challenge we face, and it's the much more time-sensitive one, back to your question, is people don't realize that ethanol is ready to fill that role. If you ask a policymaker today, do we have a good strategy to be able to reduce our fossil diesel dependence in this country? The answer will be no. And when they think of ethanol, they think of ethanol as going into the gasoline blend stock. And when you say, do we have an answer to gasoline? They'll say, oh yeah, we can make EV passenger cars. But when you open people's minds to the fact that the fuel that we already make 17 billion gallons of, can make an immediate impact in the diesel markets that we know we don't have a solution for, that is a slam dunk economic and environmental case. And the only threat to, to it not happening is the world just not even contemplating it's possible from a policy perspective. And so I think it's about awareness when it comes to how we change our policy much more than it is about the market opportunity because the latter is not going anywhere. That's a great point. That's a great point. BJ, as you think about moving this forward into the mainstream, obviously, we need to get engine manufacturers to agree to build engines that will run on the clear flame technologies. I know you've been having those discussions. Who is interested in building out engines that can run on ethanol? 
So we already have an investment from John Deere. We're working with them to reach both the agriculture and construction market. We're doing one of their, their nine liter engines. So the type of engine you would get in, a, in an 8R tractor, for example. So they're very much on board. And, and I think they're also thinking about ethanol and, and frankly, biofuels more broadly, more, more than just clear flame. They really are one of the leading OEMs when it comes to understanding we do need a complement to electrification to reach a decarbonized future. And so they're very much engaged. When it comes to the truck market, uh, we have some MOUs in place with the aftermarket engine rebuilders, the people that do diesel engine overhauls and truck upfits, you know, inside and, and intermediate useful life of a truck. And we are also absolutely engaging with uh, partners on the OEM trucking side to scale this up in a bigger way. So pe people are getting on board, uh, just coming to understand the opportunity. No, that is very cool. I'm curious about the aftermarket engine rebuilders. Is, is the idea being you could be selling kits to to truckers whose uh, you know, engines have hit that million mile mark and they're looking for a rebuild and they could rebuild using clear flame technology? Yes, absolutely. And, and, it, and it actually kind of goes back to your market opportunity question, which is even if we could snap our fingers and make every new truck electric overnight, there'd still be 4 million trucks out there on the road that are going to have second and third lives after their first one. And ClearFlame can absolutely be integrated as an aftermarket retrofit. Will we sell kits to individual users right away? Probably not. We're going to work with the rebuilding community to make sure we also can get all the processes right for how we, we do integrate it so that when we do offer that farmer or trucker a retrofit kit in the future, we're not just giving them the parts, but we're telling them all the exact details of, of how they can use their mechanical knowledge to, to install this product correctly. Now, liquid fuel availability, do we need to do anything or be thinking about the infrastructure to provide ethanol diesel at pumps as well, or would it be just E85? So it can run on both E98 and E85 and, and any of the flavors of E85, you know, 51 to 83 percent. Those are all work. We, we are starting with E98 as our fuel of choice. Um, it also works on hydrous ethanol. So the water content you have in South America, that, that is not a problem for the technology either. I think the fuel is out there and available, and there's not much we have to do to make sure we have access to this market. But I, I believe you said, you know, what do we have to be thinking about? And, and that's, that's the key. You know, there, there is some degree of thought required here. If you want to fill up on ethanol at a truck stop, you would want to have a higher flow pump. Um, you, don't, you don't want the kind of gasoline pump that I put into my Mazda trying to put you 200 gallons of fuel in your, in your big rig. Um, and so truck stops, as they're adding more ethanol infrastructure, need to be thinking of, okay, don't put that ethanol tank on the far side of the car canopy, but put it closer to the truck canopy and make sure you have a high flow hose on it. These are not tricky problems to solve and they're extremely low cost, but we need to be conscious of them to expand up availability of this fuel. That is fantastic. BJ, we'll be watching ClearFlame very closely, wishing you the best of luck, folks. If you want to learn more, you can visit them at clearflameengines.com. Thanks for joining us, BJ. Thank you very much, Mike. I appreciate it. And folks, stick around. Garrett Toy of Ag Trader Talk will join us to run through yesterday's USDA report figure. Stick around on AOA. Information farmers and ranchers need to know. AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Thanks for tuning in to AOA today, ladies and gentlemen. You know, it's been six weeks since Russia invaded Ukraine and sent global supply chains for traded commodities haywire. One of the most impacted commodities has been sunflowers, both for seeds and for oil. Russia and Ukraine, huge exporters globally of sunflower oil. And American sunflower growers have been the beneficiary. Joining me to discuss the sunflower industry here in this country is John Sandbachen. He's the director executive director, I should say, of the National Sunflower Association, the NSA. John, thanks for joining us today. Well, Mike, thank you for having me on your program today. Let's talk about what has happened in the sunflower market. John, prices, are they record yet here in the U.S.? Well, you know, for our new crop price, we're definitely at a record. Our old record was $30 a hundredweight, and right now we're pushing $34. And uh, for the old crop side of things, we had about 38.80, and we're at 38.50, so we're just about there, and looking like we're going to move toward 40 dollars right now. I mean, those are massive price increases over the past several years, John. We just saw the planting poten- expect uh, planting expectations report from USDA. What do America? How many acres do American farmers plan to uh, plant to sunflowers this year? Well, you know, we're looking at, you know, according to USDA, about a 10% increase in acres, so it would be a little over 1.4 million acres. But, you know, overall, with with the demand that's out there right now for seed and for oil, we were expecting that to be closer to 25% increase. And, um, you know, definitely the demand is there. And when you look at where pricing is at, I mean, it, it's going to probably be pretty close to that, I hope. John, you mentioned the the demand for seed, the demand for oil. As we think of sunflower production in this country, what do we grow more for? Do we angle towards the seed market or do we angle towards the oil market? It's more so toward the oil market. About 80% of our acres are planted for oil production or they go into the bird food market. And the remaining 20% is for the confectionery seed. Okay, gotcha. That's how that breaks down. John, as producers are are thinking about maybe changing up their crop rotation here as we head into the planting season, what sort of requirements are needed for sunflowers to really thrive here in this country? Well, you know, you want to be in an area that would have, you know, good moisture, but not excessive moisture, because obviously that's going to, you know, there might be more disease issues. Uh, But overall, it fits in very well with the rotation with wheat and corn. Um, and just is a, is a broadleaf is, is a very good crop to have in your rotation. It certainly is. And as we think about the quality of the U.S. sunflower crop, particularly as we're talking on the international market, John, I know the NSA runs the Sunflower Crop Quality Report. Can you tell us a little bit, how did we fare in 2021's crop production? Well, you know, we, we had a very good crop overall. I mean, oil contents were very high. One thing about drought or in dry conditions, and a lot of the sunflowers this past year were produced in dry conditions, is it really packs on the oil. And overall, test weights are really high, and and the quality of the crop was just beautiful. It's one of the best crops we've had in quite a few years. And I think what happened in a lot of cases was that the yields that, that growers obtained, given the dry conditions, they were just extremely impressed with how well sunflower did. Well, that dryness is continuing, John, particularly up in your neck of the woods in the Northern Plains. Is that changing any growers' planting decisions here? Have you heard? You know, I've talked to some guys recently here that they're saying, you know what, it's getting a little bit drier. And in a lot of cases, you know, they remember how well their sunflowers did last year. And a lot of guys are looking to add acres this year from what I've heard, you know, versus some other crops that might be a little bit more water intensive and, you know, you know, just might have a little bit more uncertainty to them. 
That certainly makes sense. Certainty is crucial this year for folks who maybe aren't familiar with soybean production practice, excuse me, sunflower production practices in this country. Are most of these sunflowers produced under contract, John, or is there a market for growers to plant a few acres and give it a try? Well, you know, not all of it is contracted. Most of the confection seed is is contracted, but for the oil side, you know, there there's a lot of open market acres and, and a lot of different outlets that, that producers can sell the crop into. And so some farmers usually contract part of their crop, but then they also keep part of it to play with the market and, and see where things are going to go. And obviously this year with where prices are at, I mean, they're going to stay firm throughout the year. Well, and I think that's the big question. As growers are thinking about maybe adding another crop, the question is how long will these prices stay elevated? And John, you think they'll last throughout 2022. Is there the possibility they could extend into 2023? You know, a lot of it, it's going to depend on what happens, you know, with the war in Ukraine. Um, right now, there's a lot of uncertainty as to how much they're going to be able to plant and if they're even going to be able to ship any product. Uh, right now, all the ports are shut down. And, you know, the likelihood of them producing the crop that they would normally produce is probably uh, on the low side. So if they can't grow the crop this year, well, in 2023, there's going to be also some carryover that year also for this crop. So um, prices look, look to be good, you know, for, for the next at least 12 to 18 months. John, on the processing side, have these prices spurred any new processors into production? You know, we, we still have we have the same processes that we have had. But, you know, I know, for example, on the crush side, what they're doing is knowing that there's more demand for oil, they're going to be increasing the amount that they can crush. That's one of the things that they've done is try to get add more capacity. And I've got to imagine that's probably going to continue. Is that what your sources in the industry are saying? Well, you know, when you look at sunflower oil consumption, most of the oil we produce in the U.S. is used in the U.S. And just in the last five years, we've seen a 50% increase in sunflower oil usage in the U.S. So the market here is growing just exponentially and, and looks to be continuing that way for the next, you know, foreseeable future. That is exciting. It's neat to see these profitable break-evens on so many different crops that can be grown here across the country. John, if we've got listeners who are curious about sunflowers that want to learn a little bit more about your sector of agriculture, where can they go to learn more? Well, you know, probably one of the best places to, to learn a little bit more is on our website at www.sunflowernsa.com. It's sort of the catch-all source for all sunflower information. Fantastic, folks. Check that out, sunflowernsa.com. We've been talking to John Sandbach and the executive director of the NSA. That's the National Sunflower Association. John, thanks for joining us today. He thanks, Mike, for having me on your program. And folks, tune in to AOA tomorrow. We'll be discussing the cattle industry and we'll take a look at how the trucking industry is adapting to all of these changes here throughout COVID. Tune in on to Wednesday is tomorrow here to AOA. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great day.